0: So I thought I'd start with uh, questions around dispassion. First of all, question, is dispassion like sitting in a charnel ground to investigate fear? Now that's probably what they call a dutanga practice, sort of like a. Deliberate challenging practice. Dispassion refers to um, an emotional equilibrium. I mean, you could do it in a charnel ground, but you don't need to go to a charnel ground to cultivate dispassion. Just sit where you are. You'll find something that bothers you. Um, and so it's maintaining a certain um, emotional equilibrium uh, and so in this particular teaching, it's not about um, not feeling anything. But it is about, based on what's called disengagement, I means certain, you know, loosening of one's hold upon the sense doors, upon the sensory phenomena, taste, touch, sight, sound, thought, etc. Because they certainly carry a lot of feeling, and um, and also we, we identify with them. So the messages they carry of a certain intensity, you know. We see things, we get shocked by it. What we see, what we think. And these days, of course, particularly the thinking capacity because there's... Huge amount of media available, whereby many things are presented to the mind about all you know situations all over the world. So you're actually getting a global input, and most uh, news is is about that which is exciting, you know? uh, Not necessarily positively exciting, but you know fearful and irritating and horrible. Mm. So news is that which is new. It's not, you know, somebody bought some cabbage, and had a nice day. No, it's about, you know, man gets blown up, people drown in a boat, run across the Channel, um, bombs going off here and there. It's that which, whoa, you know, well, woo, woo. So um, sense of just. Hmm, Rather than reacting to that or closing it down, it's being able to receive those emotional impressions and, okay, here I am. So there can be a sense of maintaining equilibrium in the face of this this input. Otherwise you shut down, it's just too overwhelming, or you numb out, or you start getting really angry, or you feel despair and hopelessness. None of which really uh, do you any good or do anybody any good? Viraga, the non raga. Raga is an emotional wave. Mm-hmm. So someone else who mentions dispassion, disengagement and relinquishment. How does this how does this reconcile with activism? Can you say something about Applying the fruits of liberation to social and environmental justice? Um, well, I think it's not so much the justice so much as the um, injustice. Um, and so, you know, certainly if you cultivate like this, then you, you're less greedy and less hateful and less possessive and less egotistical so that means you know essentially become more just uh in your behavior because the problem injustice is caused by like we could say briefly speaking egotism or selfishness or nothing else counts apart from me i'm most you know um you know certain imbalance in terms of um one's perspective on other people or other creatures or the planet in general. There's a sense of being self-obsessed, self-view. Mm. Mm. And why is this? Why are people like this? Why is there injustice? Mm. Clearly there's a mindset that favors, you know, if if uh, this material world is all there is, I'm going to get what I can out of it. Mm. He's putting it very crudely, but it does seem that, that that's what happens. And so people obsess, getting lots of money, get excited by it, and um, you know, sense pleasures and self-centeredness, obsessiveness. Also addicted to power and dogma. You know, so you get fundamentalist dogmas, which mean there's always kind of sectarianism. And, and violence yeah. or you get like uh, capitalism which is based upon inequality that's how it works it's creating a debt capitalism is about creating a debt that then people have got to work to pay off the debt that they you know loan some money in order to get their business going so they have got to pay off the debt and meanwhile those who loan the money are making money out of that process and so this very foundation of capitalism is injustice Uh, um, and it's highly profitable we have huge corporations people earning millions billions or at least millions uh, of dollars or euros or whatever through being you know up in the managerial executive ranks of these enterprises mm. Mm. so you know this so it becomes systemic actually built into the system mm. this means it's very difficult to, because the system can't meditate, <laughs> that's when it becomes difficult. It's only living human beings that can uh, practice this yeah. mm. And so when you get a system that is so kind of focused on this uh, competition and supremacy and you get, of course, um, religions that are based upon supremacy and you get a species which is based upon supremacy, like we are the most important creatures on the planet. We are the most important thing. Nothing else, everything else has got to give way before us. You know, seven billion of us. And maybe you know. So, if some shark, you know, one shark, if like four people die of sharks every year. So let's kill the sharks because they're dangerous creatures. But actually, human beings slaughter about 15 billion animals a year. <laughs> Not four. <laughs> I mean, there's problem no problem with that. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> more than 15 billion, but you know, really more more than that every year. Uh, Some of it just for fun. (laughs) There's no problem with that, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, That's what we're entitled to do. So it's kind of supremacism of the human being. Uh, And then within that you get, you know, uh, classes and castes and um, areas of the human population who take power, feel they're in control. More important than others, and so on and so on and so on. So this kind of pyramid mentality, you know, very damaging. You know. You know, why, do, why do people? Why does that happen? You know. And so the, the craving for material wealth, one thing. The craving for power, another thing. The because these are based on. Fundamental insecurity. You know, Chitta is not secure, so it has to latch on to material things and to power to feel good, and then of course it it's, doesn't make it feel that good. So the, the thing will get more. The more you get, the better it will, it will get. Good if you get enough of it, but as we see, you know, you have um, massive, 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 massive armies and military to make us feel safe and secure. It doesn't make people safe and secure. It's still threatening, you know. You get people, you know, some countries carrying guns around to make themselves feel safe and secure. It doesn't, because other people carry guns around. So, (laughs) it's the same thing. All this this model doesn't, doesn't work. The disengagement from these power, material wealth, uh, identity, I'm the right one, I'm the only right one, we're the most important. Realising, contemplating these energies and views as destructive for one's own welfare and for the welfare of others, hugely destructive. They're not just kind of unfortunate mental states, they have extremely powerful consequences. One should disengage from them. And these practices of meditation help to approach that reflex and soften it and challenge it. And look, you know, then you call it cessation. Cessation means these things actually stop. You stop feeling so greedy, and you stop feeling so paranoid, and you stop feeling aggressive. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when these stop, naturally, what occurs? And in fact, to get them to stop, you have to generate a lot of patience and goodwill and compassion and resolution and steadiness and attention and awareness just to do it. So what happens is these unfortunate, miserable energies cease. You're left with the benevolent energies that have caused them to cease. Then that's what is available. So, you know, by and large, when you cultivate, anybody who cultivates this is likely to give up drinking, violence, alcohol and so forth, uh, they're going to want to live more calmly, they're going to live more lovingly, they enjoy generosity, they experience compassion because of the cessation of these toxic um, refluxes um, and the relinquishment of obsessive identification. So this is kind of how it, it, how it lines up. Um. And of course, if one is engaged in social activism, it's quite understandable to feel pretty riled up at the injustice and, and abuse of the environment. So this just helps to moderate one's emotional intensities to realise, you know, you've got to look after yourself, you've got to maintain your own presence, don't get burnt out by it all. And then one has resources to share, Yeah. So another question here, person is asking about body time versus clock time, personal limits in the practice. They, the person is living in Asia. So naturally their time, this evening afternoon session finishes at half past midnight. So person is pretty tired and barely follow the teachings. Should I just go to bed? Would that be wise to leave the session early and get some rest? follow my body time, or is it an opportunity to just go with the tiredness and the sustained physical presence until half past midnight? Hey, it's up to you. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't feel obliged, <laughs> because that's why the teachings are recorded, in order to for people to pick them up when, when they can actually... They've got enough awareness to, to, to use the, the instructions. They're not half dead on their feet. <laughs> but you can also, if you want, it's up to you, make a practice out of just working with fatigue. And and certainly, uh, this is one of another one of the Dutanga practices, which are sort of intense practices, is to sustain a uh, practice, you know, beyond the normal limits. Um, so you're feeling really tired, just kind of holding yourself up. And we do this to an extent in the monasteries. We have midnight meditation vigils, and sometimes we have all-night meditation vigils, in which <laughs> I mean, you know, after about midnight, it's no longer subtly attending to the breath. It's just basically holding the body up <laughs> and hanging in there. <laughs> Uh, as a practice and just working with aversion and dullness and fatigue and maintaining patient endurance so it's a practice you can do but you know if you want to actually use your time to really listen to the teachings it's probably best to you know <laughs> uh, listen while you you can still appreciate what's being said and then just say okay that's enough and i'll pick up the recording I know it's nice to be present when these things are being taught, I think so. But uh, that's how it is, you know, and it's it's marvellous that we can even have a, a kind of a global retreat. Fantastic. Uh, and we're trying to do the recordings and get them loaded up to help everyone in their time zone. So a person asking, who's been meditating for many years in various Spiritual paths, not necessarily Buddhist. And wondering about offering a meditation class in my location as a discipline for myself and to help others enjoy the benefits. How should I teach mindfulness of breathing? Well, I mean, teach what you know and not what you don't know. and teach for the welfare of others rather than to establish yourself as a teacher mm. and, and also encourage people to research for themselves their own bodies their own minds and the, and the texts uh, because all of us have limitations so I generally you know encourage Okay, listen to me, but also see what we have, what the Buddha said, and then you can check it out for yourself. It's not that I've got it all covered, but uh, you can check it out for yourself. So encourage encourage it that way. But if you want to teach as a discipline, it means you've got to do the field work yourself, both in terms of the practice. Also, be aware of what occurs if you are seen as a leader of a group and there's certain dynamics that occur within that which one should be aware of and generally uh, um, modesty and humility and um, just speaking for your own experience is recommended then there's a nice feeling of sharing sharing what you know sharing your advice sharing your own experience with others There's different ways, teaching, teaching, it's about exploring and sharing Mm. together. Someone also comments on joy, a couple of questions around joy. So this person, times joy, turned into poignant sadness. I chose to soothe it and withdraw a little, but I am curious about the closeness of joy and sadness. Mm. 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 They both come from a full heart. Mm. Come from a, a full and um, emotionally sensitive heart. Mm. Yeah. So sadness um, uh, its a trembling, it can, can turn into compassion, uh, awareness of the transience of things. The heart is sensitive and it trembles. There could be joyfulness and sadness kind of playing in that. This is why we cultivate breathing within the body so that the uh, qualities of, of pity are steadied and soothed because mm. it, it, pity itself is a kind of certain shaky quality to it or, or trembling quality to it. So it helps to, to ground it. So um, it can. That's why it's always said you suffuse it into your body. Then the more emotional aspects of it are um, moderated into into. Resonances that can uh, do the work of eliminating dullness and fatigue and ill will. Question about the suffusion impact of piti sukha overpower what one is then to be sensitive to in the third stage of the feeling tetrad. Mm. Well, so okay. So the second tetrad says, thoroughly sensitive to piti sukha, and then sensitive to the to the mental formation, and then calming the mental formation. So sensitive. So one is picks up this particular experience, mm, and then carrying it into the to the body, so the body helps to ground it and stabilise it, take up the energy in the body, so it doesn't just, the heart doesn't get overwhelmed by it, that's the idea. You breathe it into your body so the heart doesn't get overwhelmed by it. Uh, and then soothing it, calming it, so it's a sense of just... Um, the emotional sensitivity itself needs to be calmed, so we're not getting over-sensitive. In the third tetrad, feeling and perception are the mental formation. Is the intention here to be aware of what other feeling or perception might be to the fore? No, I think the intention here is to Calm the emotional sensitivity of the heart that's experiencing piti and sukha. Mm. There's no other topic mentioned here. Um, so, when the heart is experiencing piti and sukha, it's it's activated. There's a mental formation. It's agreeable, but it's a heart formation, heart energy, and it's being activated, stimulated. So, therefore calming it steadying it so that then it becomes more peaceful and then you can deal much more with the nature of heart itself which is the third tetrad yeah. and it's quite a it's quite a development in that process Mm. Because it's pleasant, and at first we're dealing with often meeting disagreeable phenomena, physical discomfort, uh, painful memories, Mm. negative afflictive emotions, dullness and confusion, Mm. tension and distress. And then we're working, so then you, you're using your, your practice to actually begin to move through these and clear these. And the result is this pleasant qualities, uh, and agreeable qualities, joy and ease. then <laughs> You can stay with that for a while, but then you have to deal with pleasure. You've dealt with pain. Now you're got to deal with pleasure, because pleasure can overcook, you know, so you sort of lose your moorings, lose your emotional equilibrium. So the aim is to not just to, you know, dwell and create more pleasure, but to understand and move through feeling. Mm. And feeling is a, a leader of what moves us, isn't it? All Dhammas converge on feeling. Everything touches as it feels something. It's a, it's a prominent feature of our lives. We follow pleasure and run from pain. We defend ourselves from pleasure uh, from pain and try to store up pleasure. It's an extremely powerful orientation. But around this... There's a lot of defending and, and wanting and feeling lost and wanting more and getting excited and so forth. So it can generate unskillful, um, selfish and um, imbalanced mental psycholo- psychologies. The aim is not to destroy feeling, but to master it. As the Buddha said, I did not allow the feelings of pleasure to overcome my mind. So great pleasure and happiness arose, I did not allow it to overwhelm my heart, my awareness. I remained cool, steady, uh, focused, uh, grounded. Mm. So then, then, then penetrate that which feels, that which is sensitive, which is chitta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're moving into another another level, another domain, uh, which is where heart becomes something more like awareness. The chitta you know becomes more steady, becomes something like a steady aware quality uh, and then gladdening the chitta, gladdening it mm-hmm. and steadying it. And freeing it is the movement of the third tetrad. Could you say that citta is the deathless? No, I wouldn't say that. Um, But the Buddha does say the citta that is released from craving is the deathless. (laughs) The citta that is released from uh, grasping is the deathless. The jitta is not leaning on some feeling or mind state awareness that's not holding on to anything this is the deathless mm. yeah so jitta you know it's it's a reference point to you know the center your center and for most people that's that barely recognizable as having a center because it's so stuck. And as you begin to kind of wake up a little bit, you realise there's a fundamental knowingness or presence that's there all the time. Even though you get waves of emotion rushing over it and difficult psychological states, somehow there's a sense of a presence and an awareness. And we think, that must be me, myself, which is one way of talking about it, of course. And in certainly in things like Vedanta, they call it the true self, you know, true self. Um, and which is just a form of words, but uh, I think it's important to, to recognize there is this kind of, you know, seemingly pr- presence, knowingness that's there. Uh, and you try to look and find it where it is, you can't find it because it's behind. It's like, it's that which sees, that which looks, that which touches, that which is... It's like the eyeball can't see itself, but we can see. Similarly, the chitta can't see itself, but it can see all kinds of things. And we tend to get lost in the things that the chitta is aware of. And it's pulled out by feeling. And if the feeling is calmed, then chitta says, oh... It sort of turns back into a recollecting presence, awareness. Mm. It sort of settles into itself. It settles into itself. And what you realise is all the stuff that's going on doesn't seem to impact, doesn't seem to shake it. You feel there's a sort of sense of something present, that's awake, it's not defending, it's not sleeping, it's not shutting down, it's awake, but it's not getting impacted. It's not getting thrown around. uh, It's steady. Uh, And perhaps as you meditate, you can just begin to, through skill, through some practice, begin to just relax that, that outgoing quality that Is going into mind states, thoughts, feelings, memories, because something is sensed, you know, there's no end to this. And there's also a need to really realize this presence and release it. And the release is termed in two ways there's what's called chitta vimuti and panya vimuti chitta Vimuti means you're basically cleaning up the chitta. So the reflexes of rushing out or rushing back or jumping up and down or diving or sleeping or, you know, those reflexes have been, you know, relinquished, put away or subside. panya you acknowledge it. There's a sense of Ah, what is it? What is this state of freedom about? Say, and the process continues to relinquish the tendencies to get an identity going around this state or any state. Yeah, and so some of this language is a bit difficult, but um, you know, you know, chitta is pretty central as the key. F- key player in the um, liberation process. Mm. The citta is freed from the asava through non-clinging. This is a very common statement, at least in Buddhism it is, it's not the common statement elsewhere. <laughs> but the citta was released from the asava, from these reflexive compulsions through non-clinging through a non-contracting, non-grasping, there is a release, and it says, you know, it is released, and then there is the knowledge it is released. So it is both released and as a knowing that it's released. So the release, citta muti the knowing it's released, panyawi muti There's a sense of, oh, that was that, you know. Uh, So, you know, so this is described as deathless, Nibbāna, these are the terms that are used for that, because this quality, because it's not in time, it doesn't persist in time, therefore it's not about that which comes and goes in time, birth, death. Now clearly the body dies, or sensory condition passes away and crumbles and dies uh, saying it's deathless the jitta doesn't do that so then of course it goes, all oh, what happens to the jitta when the body dies and the Buddha refused to comment <laughs> on that <laughs> has, it, has it gone to heaven no has it gone to another no it says it's just it's just gone out just like the, where does the flame go when the fire goes out? It's the energy as is, is finished. And it's released from these energies, is released. There's no way you can describe it. Except non-clinging, peaceful, sublime. But that's the teaching and let's do the practice. Breathing through what the mind does and doesn't do.